University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. All of our soul, of all of our inmost being, we praise your holy name through Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. So our family has a tradition called Serial Saturdays. For most of my children's life, we have not let them have the sugary cereals that I was raised on, but I turned out normal. (laughs) But uh, on Cereal Saturdays, we go to the store and we pick out one of those sugary delights, Golden Grahams, Lucky Charms, or even Reese Puffs. And then we watch the old commercials uh, of the the cereal boxes off, off YouTube. When I was a kid, there was something that you would look forward to in opening that new box of cereal. It was the prize at the bottom of the box. Now, this scheme kind of began with the Cracker Jack company, and cereal companies used to use it, uh, you know, put prizes in the box to get that little extra incentive for parents uh, to get, go buy their brand and have their kids have a toy as a result of it. And we got all kinds of cool things like 3D glasses and trading cards and that gum that, as soon as you bit into it, broke into a thousand pieces. But it was, it was a prize at the bottom of the box. But then companies started getting sued for kids choking on toys that they accidentally poured in their cereal. And I'm not laughing at that. Uh, so they just stopped doing it as a result. And you know, something changed in my relationship with cereal when the prize was no longer in the bottom of the box. Now, all of a sudden, you had to collect a number of boxes and then ship off a proof of purchase and then wait an endless amount of time and all of a sudden you might get the prize that took something so simple and made it so complicated. We're in our series, The Little Big Things, how shared spirit-led commitments drive oversized results. And we're looking at that more often than not, the difference between thriving and floundering in a church is whether or not we commit to do the small things that make a credible difference. We're examining the book of Acts, who hosts this overarching theme throughout the book in which it states again and again that the church grew in numbers. So for this, we return back to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, which reads, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The first takeaway from the text is, they did what? Are they insane? Let's get this straight. The first church was a community of people who learned and prayed together. They ate meals together. They worshiped together. They served together. And then they shared their resources together. What a bunch of hippies. Sounds like socialism. Making sure that everyone is taken care of, sharing your resources, and not just keeping them to yourself. 
And not only this, but God used this community, their mutual sharing and praying and learning and serving and worshiping and eating to expand and grow the kingdom of God. Verse 47 says, the Lord added to their number daily those being saved. This line, again, repeats again and again in the book of Acts. So what you're telling me is that the formula of living in the way of Jesus, of loving your neighbor as yourself, together in community with other people, will actually make a difference in the world. It's like God knows what God is talking about. And instead of giving to the church out of a concern of being blessed in return, or adding up a certain percentage of what they give to balance out the religiosity of what they feel required to give, instead of giving out of a guilt-driven obligation, or without worrying about if they're going to get a tax write-off purpose for it, they gave and shared of themselves abundantly with the church. And as a result, the kingdom of God grew. Have you ever considered the spiritual effects of generosity? God wants you to give so that God can bless you and make you richer. Oh, I'm sorry, that's the prosperity gospel. But this whole prosperity gospel stuff actually finds its roots in some scripture. For example, Proverbs 3, 7 through 10, when it's not taken out of context, it reads, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor God with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled and overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. So let's be biblical literist for just a second. Depending on whether or not we are letting God be God in our life, even God of our finances, to respond to God's command to give generously literally brings health to our bones and nourishment to our body. Maybe God knows what God is doing. Maybe God doesn't have ulterior motives for calling us to generosity, Maybe God knows that it brings better living to our lives. Have you ever considered the psychological effects of generosity? Imagine what happens when we stop considering how we can gain more for self and tear down our small barns and build bigger ones, as Jesus talks about in the parable. Instead of running the rat race of keeping up with the Joneses, we start living life simply. By simpler, it creates a new attitude in which It flushes away our stress and anxiety and worry and panic of keeping up with other people. And then we begin to see the psychological changes of becoming a generous person. Recall the the times in your life in which you felt incredible joy when you shared things with those that you love. I consider the great joy I felt at building water filtration systems for impoverished families in Ecuador building a new home for somebody who was the victim of a tsunami in Sri Lanka, or building raised garden beds for single parents in Clayton, North Carolina, so they could provide fresh vegetables for their families, or giving a full scholarship to a child to play in UBC's soccer academy, or serving alongside people like Nancy Merle and and Bonnie Ellis in UBC's Benevolence Committee, providing people in our community with emergency resources and their time of need. The joy I've received from these acts of service give me even greater joy. Evolutionary uh, psychology suggests that humans are born with a biological hardware required for generosity. 
In particular, we have brain circuits and hormone systems in place and at the ready to help others. And it actually makes us feel good as a result. In fact, economists and psychiatrists did a recent study that proves that Jesus' words are actually psychologically and cognitively true. The study conducted by Harvard Business School and the University of British Columbia, they wanted to look at the human body's response to both selfishness and selflessness. And the study found that the core, there is a correlation between happiness and generosity. The study found that people spending as little as $5 on someone else elevates their levels of euphoria and relaxation and energy and sociability within their brain. Many studies have linked generosity to physical health and increased mental health. Now imagine that same feeling day after day of giving yourself away to others as you experience the love of God. It's a pretty awesome feeling when you stop and think about it. But, but generosity goes beyond just a, a dopamine hit for being kind to others. Let's take this a step further. A recent study found that the finances of Christians who are generous are generally, generally healthier than the finances of those who do not. The study took a closer look at financial spirituality and giving practices of people that give 10% or more of their income away to the church and charities each year. And researchers compared tithers to non-tithers using nine financial health indicators and found that tithers were better off in every category. Among tithers, for example, 80% have no unpaid credit card bills. 74% don't owe anything on their cars. 48% own their own homes. And 28% are debt-free. The weird thing is, a tither looks at that and says to themselves, well, I'm, I'm better off because I give. And a non-tither looks at that and says, oh, they give because they're better off. So there's some deep psychological and spiritual differences between those who reflect on the generosity of God and those who don't. God begins and continues to do great things within and through us when we are generous people. So there's something to be said about the transform transformation that takes place inside us when we loosen our grip on our resources, allowing God to guide our portfolios and pointing our hearts towards generosity. It's liberating. It brings health to our body and nourishment to our bones. How fascinating. How life-giving. The first church community, these first followers of Jesus, did something that we cannot do unless we change our way, in th of way of thinking and acting around giving. The change needs to take place within our thoughts and practices of giving is giving is investing in the work of God. The great priest and author Henry Nouwen wrote, to set our hearts on the kingdom of God therefore means to make the life of the spirit within and among us the center of all that we think, say, and do. Giving is investing in the work of God. It's not some awkward or nasty conversational practice, but instead it's an invitation into a healthier relationship with God and partnering in the exciting work that God is doing in this world. Now one goes on to write that giving and raising resources is first and foremost a form of ministry. It is a way of announcing our vision and inviting others into our mission. So what is our vision? Well, University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically 
live creatively, and love continually. We've committed to glorifying God and sharing God's love through worshiping with a spirit of openness. Proclaim the message of God's salvation through Jesus Christ to our community and the world. Teach, equip, and nurture people to grow in Jesus and to serve those he served. Minister the needs and hurts and joys of people within and beyond our church fellowship. We believe that in this process of spiritual formation, the work of missions, the fruit of building relationships, the commitment to volunteering, and the dedication to intergenerational connections. And if we believe we have a vision that is amazing and exciting, then we are called to invest our resources through what God has provided for us. And we're called to invite others to do the same. Giving is believing That ministry of introducing people to the love of Jesus is fundamental to life. Now let's just think about the many ways that UBC uses its budget to fulfill its God-given vision. On a given year, we invest $40,000 in missions. Whether it's local partnerships and projects, the CBF Together for Hope work in North Louisiana or global missions. For ministry to children, youth, and college and students alone, we invest $30,000 a year. We invest over $40,000 a year uh, in, in education and outreach to young children through the Mother's Day Out program. And because it takes human resources, utilities, and meeting spaces, we invest our resources in administration to make all these ministries, missions, programs, and events a reality. And this is just a portion of how we intentionally invest our resources to fulfill God's vision that he has given to us. As one author writes, if we look at giving in this framework, we take up our cross to follow Jesus, allowing him to live, it costs us everything, not just 10%. But in that death of us and life of his, we find true joy, we find generosity, we find love, we find stewardship, we find blessing. We give abundantly and generously and extravagantly. We are not concerned about tax deductions or accolades or credit. We're only concerned with the glorification of God. So what if we simply gave and honored God where God is leading us? And this is without concern of whether we get credit for it or others praise us or out of fear that God will somehow curse us. What if we were a people who gave because we wanted to invest in the work of God. Do you remember that story from the Gospels of Jesus feeding 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish? It's, it's a conservative estimate because most biblical scholars believe that they were only counting the men in, in the group. So it was much more than that. It, it's one of the most remarkable miracles uh, of Jesus and certainly leading so many to faith as they saw the power and radical hospitality of God to care for people in their most basic needs. But the miracle was made possible because a little boy heard the disciples griping to Jesus about sending people away to get food on their own and not having enough money to buy food for everyone else. This little boy, most likely a peasant, gave what he had to Jesus, and his generosity fed over 5,000 people. See, we must consider with all that God has given us, not just love and hope, but, but God has blessed us with resources too. And not only do we have to change our understanding of what our generosity is giving to, but we also need to consider why God has blessed us to be able to give in the first place. 
What I think we should see from our text in Acts is that God was providing for people so that they could provide for others. Have you ever considered that we are blessed so that we can bless others in return? What you have, either small or as abundant as it might be, has been given to you by God. And scripture teaches us that every good and perfect gift comes from God. It also teaches us that God gives good gifts and the necessary things we need in life. And this brings us back to either being merely interested in the words of Jesus that promote a way of life and being obedient followers of Jesus in all of his teachings and all of his ways. And we have to forget that everything belongs to God. And I believe that God gives to us generously so that we can generously give to others. But that's a mindset that has to shift in our lives from a sense of self-assurance and self-abundance to begin to thinking about how we might share this with others. And what's fascinating about the early church is this culture of generosity and sharing and giving led them to thriving. And if you don't believe me, turn two chapters later in Acts chapter 4 just to give you a look at the generosity of this community of people. In verse 32 it says, All believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work at, in all of them that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. There was no limit to the generosity of the people in the first church. People were literally selling off homes and land, to give abundantly to the needs that existed. This is what it looks like to invest in the kingdom of God, to, to bless others with what you have been blessed with, and to be in complete unity with the church. And one thing we can specifically draw from this text is that the generosity of giving is an act of being in community with God and with others. And that's a very important lesson for us to learn because I think the major reason that people miss out on the importance of generosity and therefore fail to give the problem is that too many modern churchgoers tend to conceptualize themselves as separate from the church. But when we begin to understand that we are part of the community of God, we are part of the body of Christ, our relationship with the church changes. There's a problem if you're always asking, what can the church do for me? There's an even greater problem if we think that we're giving to the church because we're paying for some sort of service. See, once we see ourselves as part of the community, then we see that our resources are an opportunity to give to others to grow the kingdom of God, specifically through our church. And when we begin to see that giving is an act of being community with God and others, then the translation goes from what's in it for me to who can I bless. Selling their land and homes, giving without question or second thought, this church community should challenge us to our core. This text challenges me on just how much I'm willing to be generous to God and to others. And often our mindsets can be the other way. What can I get away with giving to God, get away to giving to others? 
I say this without arrogance or desire for glory for myself, but the fact that Jennifer and I, without question or hesitation, give 10% of our income every single month to the church. But is that all we're willing to do? In what ways can I be more generous to UBC and to others? That's what this text smashes down on my toes. And I think wise people test their limitations. It's what keeps us humble and challenges us to reach even greater heights in our journey with God. Paul boldly states in 2 Corinthians 8, But since you excel in everything, in faith, and speech, and knowledge, and complete earnestness, and in love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want you to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it to the earnestness of others. In order to be honest with ourselves about generosity, I think we actually have to personally look at how much of our resources we give to God. And that's a personal act of self-awareness to see honestly just how much we love God. That might sound harsh, but Jesus teaches us that we cannot love both God and money. It says that we will either hate one or love the other. We will either serve one or despise the other. And if we're giving to God, is it a relationship of generosity? And when we give, where is our heart? Are we bothered by what we're giving? Is there hesitation or is it with joy and energy? And are we allowing our contributions beyond just our money, but are we giving our time and our energy to see the mission of God become a reality through this church and this community? Do you remember midway through the college football season, when uh, LSU fans stopped going to the games and started griping about getting rid of Coach Ed Orgeron. <laughs> I remember it because I was at a game and I was thinking, where is everybody? <laughs> for merely 18 months removed from this guy leading the school to its third national championship. And to part ways with Orgeron, the school paid, his, paid out his <clears throat> $17 million package. <laughs> I didn't stutter. $17 million made possible through the generous donations of TAF contributions and boosters. And just when we thought that was a lot of money, and we only get started on how much Nick Saban makes, they hired a new coach at a whopping $100 million contract, 90% of a guaranteed over $1 million in housing bonus, two cars, and six-digit bonuses. All of this made possible by TAF contributions, boosters, and revenue from football. And don't misunderstand me. Good for Brian Kelly and his family. Good for LSU if it translates into winning seasons. But have you ever stopped and think about that this is all for college football? This is all for a game. This is all for fans to watch 18 to 22-year-olds play on 12 Saturdays in the fall. I love football more than anybody else. But at the end of the day, it's just a game. And it's amazing how generous we can be for a game. A game. Stop and consider if the generosity of football fans will pay for unimaginable salaries and opportunities. Imagine what our generosity to see lives radically changed by the love and grace of Jesus Christ could do. 
Stop and think about that for just a second. Imagine the impact it would make on someone's life if we were so generous, not just with the church, but with how we share ourselves with others, how we love our neighbor as ourselves. What would it look like if we simply began to practice generosity in every single day, buying the food or the coffee of the person that's behind us in the drive-thru? What would happen if instead of putting money in the giving bucket every single month and checking that off as some religious duty, but instead you ask God each day how God wants to partner with you and blessing the people that you encounter each day? Can you imagine what kind of generosity that could do? The current trends in churches across the country is that 5% of churchgoers are giving to the church. And of that contribution made up of that 5%, 2% of their income. Let's break that down to size for just a second. Let's say that there's a church of roughly 100 people. I did math as the course I least appreciated, so it's going to be rough here. According to these stats, only five people of that 100-person church are giving And of those five people giving 2% of their income to God. So let's say on average, a person makes $50,000. That's roughly $1,000 per year these people are giving in a 100-person church. Where the church is doing all the work with $5,000 a year. To do ministry and to equip disciples and to lead worship and to pay for gathering spaces. But what if that 5% of people and the 2% of their income changed? Can you imagine what your generosity could do for the kingdom of God? What we can learn from the church in Acts is that again and again, they were generous with their resources and the church grew. Thriving churches shared their resources for mission and formation and relationships and more. Thriving churches Invest their resources to cultivate the spiritual lives of children through retirees. Thriving churches invest their resources in missions, caring for the local community and the work of God beyond in the world around us. Thriving churches invest their resources to build relationships, creating opportunity for people to share life together. Thriving churches invest their resources in intergenerational connections, knowing that it mutually benefits all ages emotionally and mentally and physically and spiritually. Thriving churches invest in the ministry of God because they believe in the work of the gospel. And if we can do this little thing called generosity, giving out of the bountiful blessings that God has so generously given us towards the fulfillment of God's given mission. Imagine the new exciting possibilities for University Baptist Church. If the early church grew rapidly as a result of investing generously, imagine what could happen for us now. 